Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. All right, welcome to Wednesday Night Networking. Uh, my name is Steve Kenyon and I'm happy to be sponsoring this event. Uh, we basically um, kind of started this up and thought it would be a good idea and it's taken off way better than we thought it was going to. So uh, thank you for everybody who attends and, and participates because one of the things I really noticed when we were doing these online Zoom conferences and, and seminars is that the, the networking is missing. Uh, I remember doing a couple of these now where I was speaking into a computer screen and I didn't know who was on the other end. I didn't know if they were you know, responding. I didn't know if they were laughing at my jokes. You couldn't tell. So that human interaction was so missing. So we've tried to open this up so that we're going to be able to talk and ask questions and, and interact. Um, Officially, we're going to go from uh, 6 o'clock till uh, 7.30 tonight, uh, but we leave the networking open up after that as well. So we have people on here usually till about 9 o'clock still chit-chatting and networking. So I think that's an important part to uh, our industry. Um, regenerative agriculture has been growing. It's been getting bigger and better, and I don't want this to you know slow down because of a, a little virus that come along. So we're going to keep this rolling here as much as we can. So I'd like to also talk about the Gateway Research Organization. They're our sponsor, they're hosting this. Um, I've been a member of uh, GROW is what they're called for a long time. And I've, there's lots of these non not-for-profit organizations around the province. There's some in other provinces and other states. Um, they do research and experiments and they bring in speakers and, and just amazing the, the amount of work and the knowledge that I've got from that over the years. So um, my hat's off to, to GROW. I've been, like I said, I've been a member of them on and off for 20 years, a uh, very important part to, to what we're doing. And in association with that, tonight we've got uh, Devin Lloyd as our host. Um, she's uh, taken over Amber's position tonight. And uh, Devin is actually from Erica. And Erica is the Applied Research Association, kind of the umbrella group that that uh, is kind of above a bunch of these associations in the province. So GROW is a member of Erica. So that's uh, that stands for the Agriculture Research and Extension Council of Alberta. And same thing, because I'm on the board with GROW, I've been involved with Erica on their board. I've been their vice chair, and uh, right now I'm currently their treasurer. Uh, I've been involved with them for a long time. So uh, hats off to Devin. Give a little wave there, Devin. Hi, awesome. everyone. Good, good, good. And thanks to Erica for, for helping with that. So if you call Devon Erica tonight, she'll probably still answer. <laughs> but Erica is an acronym. It's not actually her name. So, um, And uh, our other guest speakers today is, is Sheila Guy and uh, Chris Finch. Uh, Chris is actually on a cell phone, so he won't be, uh, you won't see his video tonight. He's um, not able to be on video, but he's going to be our helper. Uh, they're actually from FBC. Uh, FBC is a uh, tax consulting company. Um, Chris is actually my tax specialist. So um, I figured this would be a great opportunity to bring him in because he knows uh, uh, you know, my business. And when we're talking about the cattle cycle, that's one of the biggest biggest uh, concerns people have is, well, if you're going to work with the cattle cycle and sell a bunch of cows, well, then you got this big tax bill you got to pay. Well, um, I've actually kind of worked with it in the past um, through, my, through my accountant and you can work around that. So we can work with the cattle cycle and still have a, uh, you know, not have a great big tax burden at the end of this. So um, that's why we decided to bring them in. And FBC is uh, all across Canada. I know if you're not from Canada, they're not going to be much benefit to you. But I'm actually a member of F 
FBC and I've, I have been for about three or four years now and I've been very happy with uh, the work they've done for me. Um, yeah, I can't, can't say anything, anything bad about them at all. They've been, they've been great to work with. So um, Sheila, if you want to come on and just give a quick intro of, of who you are and what you're doing, and then we'll get into the cattle cycle. So a little bit about FBC. We're definitely not the new kid on the block. We've been around for 68 years serving Canada's farms, egg producers, and small businesses. So we are a premium provider of accounting and back office support, and we uh, fight every day to ensure that our members get or keep everything that they're entitled to. Uh, we are a tax technology leader, so we do have a proprietary software that's unique to FBC that I won't touch on at this time. And uh, we've also moved into the mobile app space as well. We're one of the only companies that integrates the mobile apps into our tax delivery service. Uh, how we work, FBC, we have a membership model. So we are proactive as opposed to reactive. You don't uh, talk about your taxes at the end of the year when you say, oh, well, I should have, would have, could have done this. Instead, we work with you throughout the year and uh, make sure that you can optimize your tax returns. And then there's 300 of us with 12 offices across the country. And uh, we have a single focus to make your life less taxing. And if I just have a, another minute, uh, Steve, basically our membership model is based on planning, preparation, consultation, representation. And uh, I can actually talk to people after this. If they want to book a consultation, I'll give a little link at the end that they can book something with me and I'll elaborate on it and why you feel that FBC has been so helpful for you in your business. So tonight's topic, um, I wanted to talk about the cattle cycle. It's been a hot topic over the years. Lots of people follow it. Some people, uh, you know, actually play with it and some people ignore it. Um, years and years ago, one of my mentors said that that's a really important part of the cattle industry is understanding the cattle cycle. So I started learning about it back then. And uh, I remember actually I was still in college and I was, you know, got the information that the cattle cycle was about to take a jump and you, you, you know, you've got to get on in on it now if you're going to try and catch that upswing in the cattle cycle. And uh, I actually bought a, a small herd of cattle before I was done college because I heard that was coming. And it worked out well because, yeah, I bought them really cheap and then the, the prices zoomed after that and I caught the upswing. Uh, and then uh, about six years later, seven years later, I actually sold that herd and made a profit on the animal. So the idea behind this, um, my mentor who told me that, is that it's like every other industry or every other stock market. You want to buy low and you want to sell high. And the more I dug into it, the more I noticed that farmers do it opposite. Right, the majority of time, when the farmers are, you know, when things are going good, prices are good, um, they buy cows, right? They're buying because things are good, so we're going to buy more of them. Uh, and then all of a sudden, there's a crash somehow, right? A drought or a, you know, a BSE or something, or the market, the cattle cycle just swings to the bottom, and all of a sudden now they got to dump a bunch of animals, and they're dumping them at a, a lower rate, right? So buying high and selling low just isn't the, you know, common sense thing to do. So I was interested, I'm not an expert on this by any means, and I'm hoping to open it up to the floor here today, but the cattle cycle itself um, has gone through numerous different uh, periods over the years. And now the last 15 years, it's kind of been at a, you know, it's, it's getting affected by other things and it's maybe not as accurate anymore. Maybe we can't count on it as much anymore. And I, I wanna discuss it and talk about it a little bit. Now, the problem with 
the cattle cycle, if you're going to buy and sell low, like I said, you could get some tax implications on that too. So we want to also include that in, in how to avoid that if we're trying. So I'm just going to do a little bit of a, a brief description here. In case somebody doesn't isn't quite sure what I'm talking about, I want to make sure to lay the groundwork first. Um, so I've got this actually from a fact sheet that I printed off from Canfax. Um, it's a division of the Canadian Cattlemen's Association. So um, thank you to them for uh, supplying some of this information. I've got a couple of them, one, one from 2018 and one from 2020. But just real briefly here, the cattle cycle here describes the repeatable series of uh, consolidation, expansion, peak and liquidation in the cattle herd. Um, traditional assumption has been over a seven to 13 year period. This cattle cycle repeats itself. Uh, it's influenced by price, production, profit, recognizing that other variables can come in there, but it's, it's really a cycle. So it's a, it's a cycle that we need to deal with. And the consolidation is basically at the bottom and it's usually only one, you know, one year, maybe two or three years, uh, but uh, it's kind of quick. The expansion phase normally lasts five years or so, uh, but can be up to two years shorter or up to three years longer. It all depends, it's variable. Uh, the peak year is not easy to predict with accuracy, but it's influenced by outside factors such as domestic and international beef demand. Uh, liquidation phase uh, normally is two to three years in duration. So the reason this cycle works in the cattle industry, because it takes a while to uh, get your breeding herd back up. Right? If you destock because of prices, now it takes two years to get a heifer back into the system. So what it does is when supply and demand change, it takes a little bit of time to you know, alter that. Uh, if you were, say, in the hog industry, well, I mean, you got two two litters a year and you have, you know, maybe eight to 10 or more pigs per litter, boy, if the prices change, you can you can speed that up real quick and all of a sudden you can keep a lot more sows to, to rebreed. So the cattle industry is a little bit slower, right? Sheep and goats, they're faster as well. They, you can have a, another breeding animal within the next year or so. So I just wanted to touch base with some people out here. Um, as to what's going on in the future as well. When I bought, let me, let me explain a couple of the cycles first. Um, there was a cycle from 1960 to 1968, uh, before my time. There was a really big one in the 1970s. Uh, it was between 69 and 75 is when the numbers increased. And they say that was actually a really big one because uh, the growth was way more than it had been before. Uh, the 80s, there was a double dip. So it was a little bit of a different uh, type of a cattle cycle, but it was a, a double dip. Uh, the 90s was actually quite different because everything went international. That's when, um, you know, the age of technology, communication better and better, uh, the NAFTA, NAFTA agreement came into play, so that affected it as well. And I guess that's when I kind of jumped into it, was I bought in 96. The prices were low. I remember I got in, you know, a, a, a smaller herd of cattle for, or I think it was purebred, purebred animals for 950 a pair. And then my plan, the, the prediction was about 203, 204 was gonna be the, the upswing of that. And I actually pulled the trigger a little bit earlier and I actually sold in 201. Um, there was another reason for that. I took a uh, ranching for profit school and I found out my cows weren't making me very much money compared to my customer grazing. So two reasons, I wanted to make sure I hit the top of the cycle and um, I, my custom grazing was paying better. So I, I switched over to that. But good thing I didn't wait any longer because 202 and 203, I mean, a lot of people were devastated because of that. So um, just luck on my part, nothing nothing other than that. But And then the prediction then was that the cycle would be at the bottom again in about 208. 
So I actually bought another herd of uh, heifers and bred them in 208. And uh, that year, because the price of hay was through the roof, um, I ended up selling them early because I, you know, I didn't want to pay that much for hay. So I sold them all that year too as bred heifers. So if, but if I would have kept that herd or people on here, maybe some people did do that in, in about 208, 209. If you bought a herd then and you kept them and sold them in 2015, right? That was the top of the last market, right? Super high prices. Um, pairs were going for what, 3,300 a pair or something. So, um, so if we can play with that market, I honestly don't think that there's a much of a, a profit to be made in selling calves, right? Like the cow-calf industry, there's so much competition. There's so much other things that are going on. You're making cash flow selling your calves. But if you can buy low and sell high of the cow herd itself, I think there's some room to make some money there. Um, but I'd love to hear from some people out there too here in a little bit. Um, so that 2015 was kind of our last high. The problem with the last uh, part of the cattle cycle, the last 15 years, is there's so many other things that are causing it, not necessarily just the expansion and, and uh, liquidation of the herds. Because we've got now more uh, outside forces. Um, the 2014-15, uh, I was told, was a, a big part of that was because of the, 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 chi the Chinese effect, I think they called it. What was it called? Yeah, the China effect in 2012. Um, they all of a sudden opened up and, and ordered a whole bunch more, more beef. So that's why the prices went through the roof, but that's a big part of it. Um, so there's international or globalization issues that are, that are affecting that cattle cycle now. So my question to everybody out here tonight is, do we have a cattle cycle anymore? Does it, does it still work the same or is it, there's too many other influences? BSE obviously threw a monkey wrench into it in, in 2003. Um, the 2007, the opening of the ethanol industry completely changed the game for feed, right? The, the price of feed changed. So that affected the cattle cycle. Um, but if we're gonna do that, are we on a low point right now? Okay, 2015 is done, 2016, the prices are back down. Are they? Is it gonna expand again? Um, and now if we were, if we were to buy low now, plan for selling in you know, eight to 10 years, whenever they're predict predicting, um, is there a possibility to make a profit out of that? So I'm gonna open that up to the floor right now. Uh, what do we got? Do we have any questions on that or any comments? I'd love to hear from some other people on this now, now that I've introduced it. Hey, Steve. Hey, Colin. What do you got to say about that? So... What do I have to say? Um, like the cattle cycle is definitely um, unpredictable at this point in time just because of COVID. But it's like uh, our markets are strong enough that each individual farmer ranch should still be able to be maintaining their profitability. You know what I mean? Like it's like what's within your focus and what's in your control. You know what I mean? And it's like... Uh, like the cattle cycle peaked there in 15 or late 14 and into spring of 15. And it's like, it did good in like 17, 18. And then it started to drop off in 19 and then 20, I would say. And then 2021, it's probably going to change again. And hopefully it's going to swing up again, you know, but I think as COVID finishes up, I think that the cattle market should move up as well because more optimism and more people wanting to do business. I think things are going to take off, but that's just my opinion. Yeah. 
Uh, it's interesting you mentioned COVID. One other factor right now would be the U.S. election, right? We just have, we're having a major oh, change, major change down there, and you never know what's going to go on now. I mean, all of a sudden, borders close or borders open or uh, you know, pipelines get yeah. shut down. Yeah, all that's factors. Yep, it's all huge. Like you said, China was the thing in fifteen. It was like you know, bread heifers, I remember, were worth a lot of money in 93. And then 94, 95, 96, they were giving them away, you know, because people thought that there would be a great opportunity to sell them for a premium. And they just kept retaining heifers and retaining heifers. And they were getting nothing. And so then, then finally, they backed off, you know what I mean? But yeah, I, I think that people that really want to watch the, like, Canfax and like all the predictors or whatever like you know if that's your thing that's your thing you know what i mean so but but primarily the market as it is is beyond our control and all we can control is what we sell and what we spend steve we do have some other comments in the uh, chat room okay so i have uh larry you're up next if you want to talk about your comment you can unmute your mic and turn on your video um Introduce yourself if you would like. How many Larrys do we have out there? I mean, <laughs> I <hope laughs> we know Larry. <laughs> I just watched a, a video last night. I, I ordered a DVD called Sacred Cow. Well, you've heard of that. It's fairly new. Uh, Joel was promoting it. Promote, Joel Salton was promoting it. But we, as cattle associations, I'm in the Young Farmers Association locally and also the Georgia Cattle Association. We need to promote beef. Um, it's basically a sacred cow. It's about getting people away from saying veganism is good and beef is bad. And uh, Alan Williams, uh, people heard of him. Alan even says they've got the food pyramid upside down. We need to eat more red meat instead of more grains, which is causing obesity. But we need as a whole to kind of tell people that beef is good. And we need to do that through associations and, and uh, uh, publications and promote beef, basically. Yes, you bet. Yeah, definitely we got to do that. Awesome. Thanks, Larry. Um, next, we have uh, Ryan Boyd. I didn't really have much to add there. I was just making that comment that, that Harlan Hughes is a guy that I used to follow quite a bit. He talked about cattle cycles, and I, I was at a presentation at University of Alberta in Edmonton a few years, several years back, and, and I it for some reason it stuck with me. He said some old-timer told a story it was always the year of the five. That was what he thought the highs were hit in that fellow's career previously. And uh, I don't know, it stuck with me. And I, I found it, it was funny, like 2015 or in that times timeline when we saw the last high. So I was more a comment than, than anything. I know we sold a bunch of cows around that time and it was good, but I also underestimated how long it would take to get back a herd that was um, kind of as adapted or selected to, to perform under more demanding wintering conditions. Like, uh, um, so that, would, that was just a, that's a thought there. I'd be curious what you think about that too, Steve. Like if you do sell out at the high or at a good price or decide to, to, to sell off some cows, what's your best strategy to, to build back? Yeah, well, I'm not an expert at this by any means, um, but I get that question back because this topic comes up quite a bit in my schools. Um, 
but the question back would be, you don't have to sell the whole herd, right? Like I sold my whole herd, but I was completely switching my profit centers, right? It was a, a, a for another reason why I did it, but it wasn't that big of a herd anyway. But if you're planning to do this, if this is part of your business management plan is to make a profit on buying and selling of cows as well, well then throw that into your, into your game plan. So when you think you're close to the top, right? You don't want to miss it. Then you cull really hard, right? Have a production sale and sell everything. Keep just your best of your best. Because then in the next stage, right? You, you sell them off the next stage, then you're going to start keeping and you know maintaining heifers out of your herd, right? Because then when the prices are low, well, it's not worth selling a heifer. You might as well be keeping her and raising her up. So uh, that's, so you're still replacing out of your best of your best. So honestly, I think your herd's going to be getting better when you're planning this through this road as well. Yeah, makes sense. So, yeah, but then we get to the tax implication. Okay, if you're just going to go out and, and all of a sudden sell 50% of your herd, all of a sudden you got this huge tax bill that comes up. So that's where you have to work, work with your accountant in advance and already tell them that this is, you know, this is my plan. When the prices go up, I'm going to sell 50% of my herd or something, whatever, right? And then your tax can, your, your tax consultant can work with you over the next few years and, and do a, I think it's an optional inventory adjustment. Sheila, do you want to just explain what the concept is? Absolutely. Yeah, it's really an important tool that can, uh, with proper tax planning, can result in thousands of dollars. And uh, depending on what it is that you're buying and selling in the year, uh, you want to use it to your advantage. And it's very specific to ag type businesses. Uh, so one of the most powerful things you can do uh, that uh, is use your optional inventory adjustment or mandatory inventory adjustment. So the OIA or MIA. And it's important to know that this is available and you can use it with your tax plan. We find that people don't know about the rule or end up paying more tax because they weren't aware of it and how to use it. So an example would be like if your taxable income was low or negative in a given year, don't waste that bottom tax bracket with its nice low marginal rate capture it with the OIA and reduce your exposure to higher marginal rates in the future years. So basically you're going to, you know, maybe pay a little bit more taxes in, you know, a couple of years when, when you're not paying very much, but then when you, you know, you sell a, your herd off later, then all of a sudden you don't have a great big tax bill then. Is that correct? Yes. And I know Chris can actually expound on that when he's able to be in an area, but yeah. Excellent. Has anybody on online right now, has anybody ever done that? Have they worked and actually planned to sell with the cattle cycle? I'll put my hand up, Steve. Can you hear me? Yes, Doug. Doug Ray, welcome. Um, we've used the inventory um, adjustment uh, over the last few years, setting ourselves up for the day when we're going to slow down and retire. Um, so essentially, you're just adding to your income with your inventory prepaying the tax when you believe it'll be lower, trying to be strategic and, and even it out at an average lower level than uh, getting hit by one big payment. So um, it's, it's a useful strategy. I think in terms of the cattle cycle, it, it seems to me that the cow numbers are dropping across particularly Western Canada for the last several years probably in lockstep with the drop in grass acres. And, and I think there's a couple things going on there. 
the beef supply has changed because the carcasses are bigger. So it doesn't take as many cows to raise the pounds of beef that go through the slaughter plant as it used to. And this year is a huge example where those numbers have jumped again into that 900 pound range. That fills gaps in uh, beef supply. If the price of beef goes up, those feedlots will feed them longer and get them bigger if, the, if it pays. So that's a factor. And I think, you know, our, our policies that we have around risk management favor the annual cropper as opposed to the, to the grass guy. The, the annual cropper bets on 60 days of the right kind of weather to get a crop grown takes more to get it harvested, but it only takes 60 to get it growing where the cow guy kind of needs a year round scenario to get enough grass grown in the summer and then a winter that doesn't hammer them for feed supplies. So it's it's a longer term, harder to, to lay off the risk on that one, in my opinion. Yeah, not many days off for the cow guy, is there? No, and if you're gonna plant a pasture, you know, you need a five year window to make that work. If you're going to rent land and grow canola, you just need the right 60 days to get the tonnage there and then a chance to harvest it. So, um, you know, that, that whole risk scenario is quite different. That's true. What, what's your prediction here? You know, what's going on with cattle cycle right now? Is it, do we still have a cattle cycle or is it uh, just hit and miss you're playing Russian roulette? Well, I think it's pretty hard to predict because if you look at the, what's going on right now with the beef supply in Canada, um, there's some big feedlots imported a uh, couple hundred thousand head of, of uh, black and white cattle, very cheap out of the States. And uh, all of a sudden you have, they're going through Canadian plants. So who would have predicted that a year ago or two, you know, 18 months ago. So um, these things can change really quick and you know we keep hearing there's a demand for protein let's hope so but uh, you know our ability to, to profitably capture that um, there's profit in the industry but most of it's going to the packer right now yeah I would agree with that I'll duck out and let somebody else talk all right thanks Doug thanks for your input thanks Doug um, so, Steve, we have a, a couple comments from Brian English. If, uh, Brian, you want to get on there. Good evening, everyone. Um, I was uh, just mentioning in the chat that uh, one thing that is affecting the cattle cycle that we never probably had historically is the new aggressive marketing from the uh, plant protein industry. Uh, just for an example, uh, there's a brand new pea and plant uh, bean plant being built in Portage of the Prairie, Manitoba. And that is going to be what uh, we're going to find as one of our biggest competitions. Uh, lots of advertising. We've all seen it in the fast food industry. It, it, they're trying to say that it's healthier for people and we're going to lose sales over that. So it's something that the cattle industry has seen in the last couple of years, it's getting bigger, I think. All right, thanks, Brian. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely out there. I don't think it's a huge movement. I mean, it comes in, when you see things change in the fast food industry, it's a fairly big deal, right? If, if A&W or McDonald's changes their menu because of something, that's a pretty big deal. So 
when they showed up and these things are coming in, yeah, I definitely, it's something we got to look out for. Um, I mean, this group technically that uh, follows here is mostly about regenerative agriculture. And, uh, you know, our, our argument is that we still need the cow to be able to manage the soil. And I, I don't think that's going away. That's also growing. So um, I guess regenerative agriculture just has to grow faster than plant-based meat. <laughs> I guess that's my question here. Well, is that possible? I, I, I don't, I see it's growing here and there, but I'll tell you, I don't have any neighbors that are doing it. And um, I think Gabe Brown said the same thing years ago. None of his neighbors were doing regenerative agriculture either. So um, it's frustrating at first. You just have to get over it that people just don't really are going to follow it. Some people do, but I think um, just another example, land prices are up in my area and we're seeing the bulldozers push and bush like you wouldn't believe. It's just, it's, it's too bad to see because we're going to get into a wet cycle and that land won't be farmed, but there is a reason why it was a slough. It was to filter some water, but um, that's, I guess it's their land. I don't pay their taxes for them. So I don't really have much of a say. Yeah, I agree. I'm frustrated with that too. I, I've made enough posts about that on my Facebook page that everybody knows I'm not, not a big fan of that. That's for sure. So just another quick note there, Steve, I don't know if you noticed that grain prices have just skyrocketed. We got uh, $15 canola now. We've got over seven seventy-five wheat for May delivery. Um, barley, I heard, has jumped. I haven't looked into it. Of course, I was going to buy some this month. <clears throat> so that's going to affect the calf, cattle prices as well. So feeders are probably going to take it tanking for right now. So if guys were holding on to the new year to sell some calves, they're probably going to well, I've, I've seen a 20 cent de decrease already, but um, unfortunately, so these are cycles that are all broken right now. I don't think anything is set like it used to be. I think there's too many variables. I agree. I definitely agree with that. I think everything's broken. What's caused the grain prices to go up? Um, I don't know. I was wondering if you knew. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a grain farmer. Anybody out there? What's caused the grain prices to go up? I've, I've asked grain producers because I work for Crop Insurance Manitoba here and they have no idea. They're wishing that they had sold their canola now because they sold it for $10, which was good money in the fall, but yeah, it's now 15 so. China. Is it China? They're just yeah. buying like crazy? China's apparently building their protein supplies, so they're what's behind uh, barley prices driving barley prices to 650 a bushel in Alberta and places. Um, yeah, and I think uh, canola is the same. Now, if you ask the Australians, they've been shut out of the China market because they said some things China didn't like. So that's, uh, that's the challenge with selling to China. Um, don't piss them off or the market's over in a heartbeat. That's true. We basically have customers that are always right, that are really big, right? They can control a lot. And uh, anything to do with the U.S., though? Anything going to change with the U.S. change in government, the drama that's going on down there? Oh, Chad says that it rained in South America, so the prices might have been affected, too. Yeah, there's quite a few uh, comments in the chat box now, Steve. 
Oh yeah, grain prices, uh, export tariffs in Russia. Depend as well if they bring back like uh, everything about ethanol industry as well. Like for the corn price, if you if the politics, the Biden's politics is to bring back that industry and put more money in it, that's for sure going to affect that price as well. That's true. We already had a big hit in the cattle cycle because of uh, the ethanol industry. Uh, I was actually at a course in Texas in 2007. Uh, so they opened up the ethanol industry in 2006. That's when it kind of went through. And that basically, you take 40% of the U.S. corn crop and take it out of the uh, grain market and put it into ethanol production. Well, all of a sudden, the price of grain, you know, jumped everywhere. And, you know, even way up here in Busby, Alberta, that affected my business big time. Uh, all of a sudden, the grain prices went up. That means land was more, you know, desirable. So grain guys were bidding more for land. And uh, I started losing little pieces of land because all of a sudden something that was marginal that maybe somebody could uh, rip up and plant uh, a crop in, um, that's, that's the pressure. And uh, so, yeah, if the ethanol industry changes again, well, that throws a whole nother uh, monkey wrench into the cattle cycle, so. Okay, so there's lots of people in the chat. Kelly Olson. Yeah, so on the, on the cattle cycle, I. You know, we always think that it's no longer working or whatever, but basically it always does work. And there are there are things that come in and change it uh, a little bit um, once in a while, but generally it works. Now, what, what I've noticed over the years is that some, it seems like about every second cycle, you'll have something really dramatic and you'll have you know, really bad prices. Like I think right now, for example, we're probably at the bottom of the cycle. Um, but it's not that bad where if you go back to, um, you know, the years when we had BSE, it was really bad to go back as far as, uh, 1975, 1976, it was extremely bad. You know, this there's, so it seems like about every 20 years you get a real kind of a wreck. And I, I think as far as making money on the cycle, what I would think, let's, let's say you have a $500, rise in prices and if you're able to capitalize it you know at the end of every cycle you know that if, you, if it's a 10-year cycle that's 50 dollars a head if you take the 500 divided by 10. i think you're better to try and get your costs more in line and it's not hard to either you know to change your margin by 50 dollars by just doing some different practices and then you'll make just as much money in your actual operations as you will on the cattle side and so what I would use the cattle cycle for is more of an entry and exit. So if you want to expand or you want to get into the business, maybe wait until you think you're at the bottom of the cycle. And, and on the other side, if for some reason you want to exit the industry or partially exit the industry because, because of retirement or whatever, um, that may be a good opportunity to do it. But I, I don't think the cycle is predictable enough that you can jump in and out. Well said, yeah, point taken. Like I said, I'm not an expert on this. I, that's why I, I, you know, I want some people from out there because I'm actually looking right now, it, are we at the bottom? Maybe uh, Steve Kenyon who doesn't own any cows at all, maybe he decides he wants to go out and buy some cows right now. Uh, you never know. If we're at the bottom, maybe it's a good time to get in. I don't know. What do you think, uh, Kelly? What do you think uh, with the election coming up? 
or the sorry, the U.S. election that just happened. Is that going to affect us at all? Uh, possibly. Um, you know, the biggest thing I would have concern about um, is the current administration, as of today, is talking higher taxes and probably more regulation. And uh, if that's the case, that will you know probably reduce uh, disposable income, which will will affect demand. So you know we can argue all day long which which government might be better for employment or um, you know, but generally speaking, raising taxes reduces take-home pay, and that reduces the amount of uh, money people have to spend on you know high-end restaurants and going out for a good steak, that sort of thing. So I, that would be my biggest concern: is that uh, you know I don't think it's favorable for employment. Yeah, that's true. So how would that affect Canada? Same, same thing. Well, same answer? you know, it, let let's say that the uh, let's say that unemployment got high in the U.S. and therefore, you know, the demand for beef would would go down. Go down. Yeah. Okay. So, in our market, the Canadian market is determined by very much by the U.S. Yep. So, whatever happens there is going to affect us. Um, I mean, that like if you were in a oil business, of course, the, the Keystone Pipeline cancellation is, is huge. Now, is there anything in agriculture that may be a similar threat? I'm, I'm not sure. I can't think of one right now that, that might be, but, um, you know. So a big part of the U.S.-Canadian difference in the cattle prices is actually the, the dollar. Okay, so what? how does this new election... is? Will it somehow affect the dollar? Because the the worse the dollar is, the better it is for our cow guys, right? It seems opposite, but that's how it's always been. So, well, what do you think maybe would happen there? Well, I mean, if 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 our economy is relatively stronger, uh, you know, then I guess we've got a stronger dollar probably. Now, the dollar tends to follow oil prices, you know, so our dollar will go up when we have strong oil prices generally. But I mean, you know, I, you know, that's maybe a little deeper on, on basic economics than I should go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, there's, um, you know, and I, I think uh, um, willingness to invest. So if, if, if investors see one country better than the other, as far as regulations or profitability or easing, easy, easy, ease to work with, then that would affect the relative value of their dollar and the willingness of people to invest. But, but generally, we, we seem to follow the U.S. very much. You know, if they have a good year, we should have, unless there's something radically different on, because, you know, in, in our policy, because we're so closely tied. Yeah, I think the only time we didn't reciprocate what happened in the States was during BSE, right? Our prices plummeted and theirs actually went up because because of it but other than that we're pretty similar you know we we basically just follow them we're like the little brother awesome. good good anything else devin what else we got going uh, yeah on? there's lots going on in the chat so i do have a <laughs> question from samuel um there was some other comments previously i don't know if anybody wants to elaborate on those comments i haven't heard anything back but so for right now let's go with uh samuel if you want to uh turn your mic on and your camera yeah, just ask 
if anybody like have any uh, like uh, is the cattle cycle would affect your land price as well because there's also kind of a land price cycle in some areas some some don't some have depending where you where you live but I'm wondering if it's something that you see through uh, the past year yeah I, I from my opinion what I've seen is I don't think that the cattle industry really affects land prices very much. It's more the grain industry, right? That's where the money goes up and down and where all of a sudden, like uh, we talked earlier about the, the bulldozing. Um, the, that's scary that that works because when you bulldoze the land, your balance sheet goes up because your land is now more valuable, which is totally opposite of what I personally think it should be, but it works. Right, because you did that, your balance sheet went up. You have more borrowing power. You can, you know, get another loan and do it again. Um, and then with the, you know, uh, protection in the price of grain and things that are that are happening, then they have the the power to do that. Um, the other big effect is just urban sprawl, right? You know, the closer you are to a city, the more valuable your land is because somebody might want to buy it just because they want to get out of the city and live there. It's cheaper to buy a quarter section and a house on it. Um, you know, 45 minutes from the city than it is to buy a house in the city. So they come out and they buy the house, at the, you know, the, the quarter with the house. So I don't think the cattle industry has much, you know, to do with land values. Uh, if anybody else has any other comments on that, I, you know, that's just my opinion on that. So. Joel, I don't know if you want to elaborate on any of your comments. I see you're <laughs> quite active in the chat. So maybe we could uh, hear your beautiful voice or something. I see Brian wants to sell me cows. <laughs> yeah, there's also that. Looks like you're buying some cows, too. Yeah, yeah. Hi, Joel. Hi. I don't know if you've been reading the chats, but pretty tough to get going around here anyways. Pretty heavy cash crop area that definitely capitalizing on higher grain prices. Pretty tough to kind of justify having livestock. Don't know if anybody else can share on that. Yeah, really the, the the grain and crop industry really dictates really what the price of land is doing, that's for sure. That's what we find out here as well. I remember being out in Ontario doing a talk and they were talking about, uh, you know, the, the land rent, just to rent a piece of land was upwards of $300 a, an acre. Whereas, you know, somebody 45 minutes from them, they were only paying $20 an acre. So it varies so much depending on the obviously the quality of land as well but also the the location so um, so we have a question um from ryan boyd yeah i was just curious if anybody's doing the sell by marketing particularly of the yearlings selling and buying on the same market and what the if anyone thought there's opportunity doing that how that's working for them I guess that could have the same implications on your tax taxes as well. If you, you know, buying in one year and selling later type of thing or, but anybody else out there have a comment? Yeah. I was thinking like in terms of the Bud Williams style marketing, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, like if you're selling, selling something and trying to replace it on the same market to capture that margin and work in that system as opposed to buying and then selling later and working backwards. Sometimes the best thing is to keep cash or, or keep your feed or sell the feed and not buy cattle. I mean, you have three silos, right? You have cattle, cash, and feed. 
And right now, if you have barley, it's very overvalued. And sometimes it's better just to sell the feed and keep the, keep the cash and not own the cattle. That's what I think is happening right now, but I don't know. Yeah. Good point, Lance. Ryan, your comment about uh, the Bud Williams stuff, a uh, little side note from my experience is uh, years ago, back in 95, 96, uh, Bud Williams was working in Lloydminster at VT Feedlot. And I happened to be going to college in Vermilion. And uh, we had an opportunity to go to a, a Bud Williams clinic and the college was going to pay for it. And this is a huge opportunity, right? Well, good old Steve Kenyon here went to a rodeo instead. And am I ever kicking myself now? <laughs> I sure would have loved to have gone to that, uh, that event back then. Um, yeah, and I, I bucked off both my bulls too. So it was a waste of time. Yeah, that I would have loved to have had the chance to meet that guy. That would have been yeah. something. Yeah, he worked at a feedlot a half an hour from where my family farm is, right? And I, I went there once and I did a bit of a tour there and I, I saw him in a pen. That's about it. That's the closest I got to meeting him. Anybody ever take the Bud Williams course? That would also answer Ryan's question here a little bit. Over the past year, I so I, I purchased their whatever. They have a subscription system and that and the course delivered you know via a uh, at home you know not not in a classroom setting you can you can do the stuff at home and so i have done that and then you also get you know lifetime access to their spreadsheets and all that sort of stuff but no i never did go and actually sit in person and and see bud williams or his his daughter and uh um eunice and i can't remember her husband's name but yeah, that's what that's the process I went through with with the cell by to, to learn it. Hey, Steve, can you hear me? Yes, Karen. How are you tonight? Oh, pretty good. I did go to a Bud Williams course, but it wasn't with Bud Williams. It was with Hand in Hand Solutions, uh, Livestock Solutions. And it's Tina Williams, daughter, the daughter of Bud Williams and her hubby, uh, uh, Richard McConnell. And it was an excellent course. It, I think it was like a three day stockmanship course. and They had it down in Cochrane. And basically, it was just sitting in the classroom. We didn't do any any uh, actual handling with with the animals, but went over some uh, videos and and had a worksheet, kind of just kind of not really worksheet, but a but a little bit of a tip sheet, and and kind of had an open open ground discussion of of uh, handling animals. And it was I learned a, I learned a ton. <laughs> Like it, it just completely opened my mind to uh, uh, changing my my way of of handling animals, and I, I see things as a um, handling livestock in a whole new way. And you know, and I don't I don't have cattle. You know, my my dad passed away like back in two thousand seven, but you know, with the times when I do get the opportunity to work with livestock, work work, work with cattle. I mean, I, I find that though that uh, the teaching with Bud Williams and, or with Tina Williams and her and uh, Rick McConnell with Hand and Hand are excellent. So highly recommend it. Yeah, rub it in my face that I didn't get to go. <laughs> I know, I know, man. You should take it, Steve. It's really good. <laughs> I should have back when Bud was actually there, though. I'm kicking myself. That would have been good. That would have been really, really good. Yeah. Well, I, I actually... I actually saw Bud Williams several times uh, right on the field. We paid him $20 cash and he showed us. And I think the biggest thing I learned from that was when he took a, a, 
a herd of steers absolutely uh, like you should never get them through. It was that he would go back and pick them up, go back and pick them up until everybody get tired and then through the gate. I learned a ton of how to handle cattle. So I have met him in person and he hated women and he, and you know how inquisitive I am. I was not in his good books, but I learned a lot. That's 20 bucks you ever spent? Oh, well, I probably spent 40 because I've seen him several times, but it was always cash in your pocket. And I always thought, how dumb was I? I didn't charge $3 for each of you guys coming on my plate. <laughs> and, and I never did. I just gave you free lunch or something. $3? I will send you $3. Well, I, I learned so yeah. much from you. But it was it was a very much the American way. Give me a cash pocket here, and it's no time. Yeah, it, he was a very smart guy. I learned a lot from him. Excellent, awesome. Thank you very much. And and I I also want to add. Uh, of yep. course, I've been retired for almost well twenty years now, I guess. And uh, this whole cattle cycle. When you start very, very low with very little, you just have, you have these, but I sold heifers for many years because I found out everybody wanted a beautiful crossbed heifer. And I wanted the nice little um, good cows that will last me a lifetime and give me big heifers when I bred them to some Chevrolet or whatever. So I sold the, the fancy heifers off every year and kept the good cows small little cows that could give birth to anything. And I learned that back in Denmark, where we had some, I worked on a and he bred all the cows he didn't want a female farm. He bred them with Chevrolet because they could give birth to any calf. And we sold them to the Italian market. He had two, he, he milked cows and he sold beef to the Italian market. So yeah, nothing new, but we have to keep learning. Just keep learning. You're doing a good job. Awesome. Thank you, Ula. Uh, it's great to have you on here. I really appreciate you being here. Great. So uh, Pat Toner, um, did you want to speak a little bit? He's actually fooling you. That's Colin Toner, but he, he oh, doesn't okay. know how to change his wife's name. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I changed her last name, not her first name, Steve. <laughs> I was there. I was there. <laughs> um, so a couple things. So one thing that we did here was a long time ago, uh, we used to sell purebred bulls. And then Pat and I, when we started building up our cow herd, we would go to these guys that we sold bulls to that were kind of local. And we would buy heifers back from them guys. Or we would buy their whole cow herd eventually as they retired or something. So anyway, so we'd start out buying these heifers. And then we would feed them separate from our keeper heifers. We'd feed them up so they'd look shiny. And then we would sell them in a, a premium heifer sale. And so then we did that for a few years. And then along came 2015. And instead of selling only 10 or 15 heifers, we sold like 50 heifers. You know what I mean? So instead of getting like $12 and $13, $1,400 for these heifers, we got like $2,500 and $15 for heifers. So that's, so we built a little bit of a reputation of bringing good stuff. And then 
when we had the chance, we pulled the trigger on a good set of heifers. You know what I mean? So like, that's how you kind of have to use the cattle cycle and, you know, be ready to do it. You know what I mean? And so, but I mean, guys like Kelly and Ula, like, I mean, the wealth of knowledge they have just from life experience is invaluable. And, you know, the broad spectrum perspectives that they have is huge, you know? Yeah, so, I agree. I agree. But We've that's just a... one thing. And then, and then, and then the other thing about flipping cattle, um, like the buy, sell, trade thing, is that typically we'll sell out our steers and we'll buy in heifers just because when we grass our cattle in the summer, we don't want to have a steer pasture and a heifer pasture. We just want to have one pasture. And the reason why we go with, go with that that way is we have a profit or a yeah, profit in mind that we're going to hit with these heifers. And typically the lighter end of our heifers will hit that number. And then we buy in heifers that'll fit in with ours and then sell our steers. And uh, like the guys buying and selling cattle, like you'll literally be walking down the alleyway, loading up these heifers the day after you just unloaded your steers. And they're wondering, what are you doing? You know, like they don't get it. Like they get it, but they're like, but that's kind of one thing we do. And Does uh, the, the reason why do the heifers do the heifers give good. you a second option too, Colin? Right. Technically, your steers you sell them as steers, whereas heifers you can sell them as feeder heifers, or you yeah. could breed them and sell them as bred heifers. You could, yeah, but we're buying in pretty light heifers. You know, we're we're we have a real like for cash flow reasons. That's their 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 exit date is their exit date. So that's kind of how we play that game. And cool. so like, like there, there is, there is issues that do come up. Like the biggest issue is temperament out of everything. Like, you know, there's all the traits in the world you can select for and temperament is number one on them grassers. And we've even had them where they show up, they bounce around too much. You sort out those two goofy ones, kick them out with the cows that are calving late and then send the rest of grass with your own heifers. And you have enough of your own heifers that you just dilute the stupidity and away you go. Can we do that in the human population? You like that dilute the stupidity? Yeah. Can we do that in humans? I don't know yeah. if it would work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Colin. So, but yeah. All right. Take care. Excellent. You bet. Um, so I have a, a question from, sorry if I'm pronouncing your name wrong, Nisha. I know Nisha. Yeah. I was wondering if there's a Chris tax expert for ranchers in the U.S. Because I'm listening to all this Canadian speak and I'm like, you guys are so much nicer. And I wish I lived in Canada. <laughs> I'm having a little bit of anxiety. But anyway, that's besides the point. So you're asking if there's a Chris in the United States? Yeah, because that's where I live. Sheila or Chris, is there a body in the United States similar to FBC that you know of that is a farm tax specialist? Um, so we have FBC has a partnership with MCO Partners based in the U.S. Okay. And um, I have an email address if you're interested in getting a recommendation. Um, just send us an email and we'll find someone in your area. There you go, Nisha. I didn't think we were going to get an answer to that question, but we did. Thank you, Jade. Jade is also Thank with you. Jade is also with FBC, so she's she's been a, a big part of our our connection with FBC.
Perfect. Thank you. You're always delivering. This is an awesome thing. I feel like a, a little bit like I'm um, out a fish out of water, but it's all fun. It's all good here. There's there's nobody that's uh, uh, out of place here. That's for sure. So we have another question from uh, Colin. If Colin would like to uh, get on the mic and video. Hi. Uh, so down in the, the States here, but listening to all this, it all seems a little, a little risky for my blood maybe, but uh, we're, we kind of got a traditional cow calf guys, you know, keep their heifers and whatnot, but uh, you know, it seems like a simpler idea, maybe lower risk too, would just be simply, you know, not keep any heifers back and send them all to sale and call your bottom end of your cows out really heavy when prices are high and then, you know, replenish and rebuild, keep back a lot of heifers when prices are low. I was just wondering if anybody had any input or an experience with it or any comments or anything really. Yeah, I guess that that's kind of the point of this is to, you know, to open that idea up. Cause I was told that by a mentor of mine, like 20 years ago, that that's something that you need to watch for because there is a definite cycle and it's, you know, it's up and down and, and it's a way to make, you know, a little bit different, but um, whether that works, whether it doesn't, you know, if you miss it one, one year, well, then you're, you know, 10 to 12 to 14 years more to actually catch up on that again. But that's the joy of being in the cattle industry, right? We, we've got, you know, we might as well go to Vegas because yeah. the, the chances are just as, just as good to make a profit. What I've seen in the cow industry now, I don't own any cows right now. I will admit to everybody, I own zero cows. Um, but what I've seen in the cattle industry, I mean, I've seen probably, I think I, I guessed 120 different herds over the last 20 years. And I've talked to that many different customers of mine that have brought in animals and the number of times that they've explained to me the wrecks that they've been in. So the, you know, they, they make money if you can make a bit of a profit on, you know, this year and next year and the year after that, and maybe you make a little bit of profit for, you know, five or six or seven years. And then all of a sudden there's a wreck you just lost all the profit you ever made in the last seven years. And then you spend four years recuperating from that wreck. And then you start making a bit of profit again and you, there's another wreck. So there's, there's gotta be more than just selling calves, right? There's gotta be a, a way to make more money in this than just selling calves. So um, maybe this is a way somebody can, can, uh, you know, add to their uh, profit center or their ability to, to make a profit in this industry, uh, maybe it doesn't work. Right. And, and it's a hit or miss. And right now that's my big concern. I mean, I'm standing here thinking maybe I should jump back in. We're kind of maybe at the bottom right now. Uh, but with globalization and all the, you know, other factors that affect that cattle cycle now, well, that's a risk maybe that, you know, maybe I'm not willing to take that. So, uh, that's the whole reason for this night is to, to see what other people have to think. So, yeah, we have a question from Samuel again. Um, yeah, just like uh, I was wondering if there's any guy that used the cattle market in the low cycle, like in the down cycle, to sell their cattle because they know that they're gonna be like they're gonna sell their land really high and really high price, so they kind of play with that to make sure that they don't at the end they don't pay that much of tax uh, in a, everything like in the sales. Uh, that's in the sales uh, situation for a guy who gets retired. So Chris, basically 
kind of a combination between selling land and selling cattle at the same time to offset them? Uh, because taxes are only a percentage of what you're going to pay. So it's more likely that we, in a low year, use that low year to um, pay a little extra tax, knowing she's going to pay in the future. Again, using the optional inventory adjustment here in Canada. I don't know if the U.S. has anything the same way, but I know here in Canada, that's what we do that for. You'd have to give your accountants some running room, as in like five to six years, so they know what's going to happen. But if, if you're going to only do it in two years and you're, you've got a low cattle price because the land's gone up in value, you're going to get out, I wouldn't recommend purposely selling low. It, it just doesn't make any sense because you're throwing away money when you're only going to be paying maximum 39% to the government here in Alberta. Um, sorry if I'm assuming this, you sound like you're from Quebec, so I believe your tax rate would be about 45% maximum. Um, don't quote me on that, but uh, <laughs> basically you're better off to always sell at the high, always, even if you have a big land at the same time. But you are better off to sell your land first in Canada and then your cattle. So if you can time it where you can rent the land from the person you're, you're selling it to for six months and then sell it after your year end, you can save taxes against what's called alternative minimum tax. But that is another whole can of beans that would be a whole other whole day presentation on explaining how that actually, does that make sense? Yes, it's pretty good. All right, interesting. Hello? Yeah, thank you guys. Um, so we have another question from Nisha. Yeah, my question was, you know, you said it's like probably easier to be gambling in Las Vegas than doing this business. So I'm just curious as to why anyone would want to do that as a business. Um, <laughs> and I, I also apologized in case I, I'm missing something because I'm not a rancher or any anything like that. Yeah, there's lots of other reasons why we do this. Uh, we, we were born this way. We grew up this way. We love the lifestyle. We want to raise our kids in this lifestyle. We want to, you know, give them the morals and values and life skills that the farm possesses, right? There's all sorts of other reasons why we farm. It's not always necessarily about money. Uh, that being said, one of my missions is to uh, teach farmers that it is important to have it about money. Right? We teach about economics in our school and, and uh, that is a big part of this because one of the downsides to the agricultural industry right now is that we don't have the, you know, we don't always have the second generation coming back, right? We need somebody, for anything to be sustainable, we need another generation coming underneath, right? For a forest to be sustainable, you need saplings growing, right? If you knock out all the saplings, it's not going to be sustainable, for a pasture to be sustainable, we need new seedlings to develop, right? So we have new new alfalfas and new clovers and new grasses to generate. So same with farming. We need that next generation coming in. And and over the years, the what I've seen in agriculture is that, um, you know, there's no time and there's no money, right? Dad's always working. He's, you know, everybody's broke. And, and there's no reason why a kid would want to come back to the farm. So my big push in in you know, what I do is I, I'm trying to tell people that we need to show our younger generation that there is some money to be made in agriculture. And that's, you know, understanding the economics and finances behind it, and that we have time to enjoy it, 
right? It's time to enjoy it. The reason why we're out here living in the, you know, God's great earth here is because it's enjoyable. It's beautiful scenery. It's uh, wildlife and, you know, stopping to take a picture of the, the moose that uh, just crossed the road. Um, to me, that's a big part of why I'm here. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, be a billionaire doing this, but um, there's other reasons why we do this. And, uh, uh, but the problem is farming has gotten so far away from, you know, making a profit. And the, honestly, a lot of producers just expect to lose money. And that's the wrong expectation. So we need to change that and, and understand the economics behind it. So I don't know if that answered your question, Nisha, but uh, yeah, I ramble on a little bit. So. No, actually, I think what you just said is, uh, is really very eye-opening. And I'm in a lot of regenerative ag calls. And most people who are not farmers talk about it in this theoretical, conceptual way that frankly isn't rooted in your understanding of it. So... I think there may be some kind of an op-ed piece or a paper that just uh, takes all of you on the phone and just like verbatim takes all this wisdom and just uh, shares it with the world. I think that in itself, without any editing, would be so valuable, just from my perspective. Excellent. Thank you, Nisha. Thanks for your input. So we do have a, a question from Annette Smith. If, uh, Annette, you want to come on? Is there... Any chance like in direct marketing would be better than just um, selling calves and taking them to finish direct marketing on the grass market? Oh, for sure. I mean, a lot of people talk about, you know, being price setters, not price takers. Right. And that's what the direct marketing does. But what I found and I'm not an, I'm not an expert on this either. But what I have found with my little bit of direct marketing experience is um, there's a whole new set of you know, issues and risks to deal with that. Um, uh, you know, supply and demand. The, the, the fact that, you know, one year, all of a sudden there's lots of demand and you're, you know, you're swamped. Like for example, this year we're swamped. We could, I could have sold three, four times as many uh, pasture pigs as I actually raised. The demand was high, but I had low supply. Um, a few years ago, we started building up. Um, we had lots of, lots of pigs to sell. And all of a sudden the demand just crashed right? The Alberta economy dropped and all of a sudden I'm left with, you know, half my, my pig herd that I can't sell. And then I, you know, I, I, I lost freezer space. So all of a sudden now, what do I do with the, you know, I, what do I do with these pigs? I lost my freezer space. So there's a whole new, you know, game to play there. And I was talking to one of my customers who does this well on a big scale. I was, I felt kind of dumb after, cause I was explaining to him how, you know, oh yeah, this was, this was bad. I, I went into the butcher and, and they ended up screwing up they they messed up on three thousand dollars worth of uh hams right they tried to to cure a ham all natural and it screwed up the hams and i lost this three thousand dollars worth of meat and he said yeah i know what you mean um we had fifty thousand dollars worth of meatballs that our dogs wouldn't even eat <laughs> right so it's supply and demand on the little scale it there's a whole new set of problems that you come into and even if you get big scale right you know when when you get bigger, problems get bigger too. So, uh, yeah, it's a nice, you know, idea, but you got to build that market and you got to be able to sell it. Can Can I just add a little bit, Steve? Yes. To that? I I do that. We have a fairly established direct to consumer marketing, and everything Steve you said there's hundred percent true. 
the one thing I'd add that can't be overlooked is Facebook and Twitter marketing. And I'd say definitely Facebook marketing is king. It doesn't matter hardly what else you do. Be good at Facebook marketing. Like I, it's, it's really that simple because everyone can raise pretty good beef. Everyone can, everyone's trying to do a good job, but you have to get it out to your customer. And that's the great equalizer is, is social media. Right. And you can, you can, and what I see, like what I see a lot of people doing, making mistakes in their Facebook marketing is they try to sell constantly. Every post is a buy my meat post. Yeah. You can't, you can't do that. I, I, you know, you kind of, you kind of got to have a structure of, you know, here's a post about, you know, something that makes you happy because it's a cute calf or a cute dog or something. Here's a post that's about our community. Here's a post that's about our vision on the farm. And maybe every fifth post, you make a post about, oh yeah, we got meat for sale. And you're giving people something all the time that they enjoy because they like pictures of cute calves. They like pictures of your family working. They get to know you, even though you don't know them and they start having a comfort level with you. You, you, people make mistakes constantly, like every single post saying, please buy my meat and they, you won't sell meat that way. Yeah, I agree hundred percent, Lance. Um, one thing that I was told years ago, uh, when I started up with Facebook, like I'm not a big social media. My wife is the tech nerd, not me. Um, I've given up on everything else other than Facebook because it's been the most successful for me and everything else just doesn't, it frustrates me. And, and then if you're not good at all of them, right? If you do everything kind of half-assed, then yeah, none, none of it's good. So I, I backed out and just focused on Facebook. And the, the one thing that they said to me years ago was you've got to do 80% give. Okay, right, right. You said every fifth post, I would say every, you know, eight posts out of, you know, every 80% of them, I guess, uh, give, give something, give information, give ideas, give an option, give something else. And then your 20%, you can ask, Hey, by the way, we sell some meat or by the way, we've got a seminar coming. Um, and man, I think that is what's really pushed, pushed us forward big time is that 80% give 20% ask. Yeah. And, and, um, I'm oh, sorry. What I was going to say there, you, you end up building a, uh, a, more of a trust with people like don't, don't underestimate. I think as an in industry, we worry about catchphrases a lot that people are worried about, like, you know, no, no, no growth hormones and, you know, grass fed, all those things. And you'll have to figure out what your shtick is and that's fine if it's grass fed great or anything, but I don't know if the industry cares as much as they just care about getting to know you as a person and knowing that you care for your animals a lot. And so just posting about life on the farm sounds easy, but it's difficult to get into the routine. But once you get into that routine of a daily post about something that's happened on the farm, people appreciate it and get a trust level with you. Yeah, I agree. I agree. There's, I've said for years that the, the, the most important part of my business it's not how good of a grazer I am. It's not how good I raise beef. It's not how good any of that. None of the production practices. It's human resources. It's communicating with people. It's understanding, you know, how, how people and building relationships with people. And, and it all comes down to trust. The ultimate word is trust. They're going to buy from you if they trust you. So good point, Lance. Thank you. I don't know if we answered Annette's question there, but uh, I hope we did, Annette. Yes, more or less. Um, I, I just see like in Saskatchewan here, we have a couple of 
um, farm to fork type of restaurants that are, you know, using all local type of uh, beef, pork, lamb, whatever it may be. And that's really nice to see in these other little things popping up. There's a store in Moose Jaw that she collects goods from farmers from all around and sells it from her store. And I like watching her and what she's doing and wish we had more in every community there is out there because we need a place to take our stuff if you can't sit at a market garden or I, I don't like sitting at a market garden, but you know, if there's a place to take my stuff to, to sell it, that would be great. Excellent. Awesome. Thank you. All right, Devin, I think that uh, we're at 7.30. That's our uh, ending time for tonight. Uh, so I'd like to thank everybody for being here. Don't worry, we're not actually kicking you off. We're going to leave the networking session open for more time tonight. Uh, but I first would just officially want to end this session and thank all the, the people that made this possible. So the Gateway Research Organization for hosting this, um, they've been a big, big help to us in the past, and I really appreciate what they're doing. Um, we've got uh, FBC here tonight as our tax experts, and I, I'm going to give them a chance here to, to close out here and, and uh, have a, a thank you. Uh, also, big thank you to Devin um, from the Erica Group. So the Erica, again, is the umbrella group kind of above uh, my association, the Gateway Research Organization. So uh, big thanks to Devin for all her, her work here tonight. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, every Wednesday we come back and do this and it's a different topic and a different speaker. And I would just like to say thank you for everybody for coming out. Uh, uh, Sheila and Chris, thank you so much for coming out tonight. I appreciate it. And I hope that uh, if anybody else has some questions, I'm sure uh, they can put the contact information in chat. Sheila, do you have something to close out with here tonight? Just to give people your contact information if they want to. Yes. Can I just share my screen one more time? You bet. Um, this actually is uh, a site that people can go on if they want to book a free virtual consultation. It is tax time. Like it says, are you ready? Uh, they can, there's no obligation. They can just book us. So fbc.ca slash greener pastures. And you just put your contact information in there. We'll get a hold of you, set up a quick little window of time. It's just a virtual consultation. And also... For the Canadians on here, the coffee is on us tonight. So uh, if this would have been in person, we would have brought the coffee and donuts. So we will send probably a Tim Hortons gift card, which I know is not in the U.S. And I'm sorry to the U.S. Uh, people that are on here tonight. But if you text us your name and Greener Pastures at 587-400-7833. So just write that down or put it in your phone, 587-400-7833. We will send you a coffee gift card. Excellent. And uh, like I said before, um, I was very fortunate to be able to run into FBC here years ago. And uh, I have not turned back. I've been very happy with what they've been doing. So uh, thanks, thanks to Sheila and uh, Jade and, and Chris. We will officially bring our night to the close. Thanks to everybody for being here tonight.